Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. Hey everybody, it's Ben uh, coming to you to talk about the new Dune movie. Uh, Dune is, um, well, it came out uh, this year on streaming at least. I did not see it in the theater. We uh, saw it on streaming at home. I watched it with my wife and all of my kids. Uh, much to my surprise, everybody was pretty captivated by it, and I did not expect that to happen. So let me give you sort of a, a you know two-minute overview of, of what Dune is and, and my relationship to the series, which may help to inform you know how you interpret my opinions and my take on this. So I have never read the books. The books were written, well, for those of you who don't know what Dune is, uh, it was originally a series of uh, sort of sci-fi slash fantasy novels written by, I think, uh, Frank Herbert. I don't remember when, but I want to say it was part of that, that glut of sci-fi we got in the 60s and 70s. Um, Dune is uh, set on a fictional desert planet. Uh, if you don't know, this is what provided the inspiration for Tatooine and Star Wars being a desert planet. And Dune kind of laid down a lot of the uh, tropes and, um, I don't know, the fluff, I'll call it, the sort of world-building background that, that ultimately was imported into the Star Wars films. So I, I think, I don't know this for a fact, but just if you if you if you watch the Dune film, the new one, you will see a lot of the, the elements or, or roots of things from Star Wars in it. Uh, Tatooine, the desert planet, uh, particularly if you look at the original script for Star Wars back when it uh, was called, I think, The Star Wars and Luke was going to be Luke Starkiller. The, the, the lead character, the prince, um, kind of uh, has a lot of similarities to the Luke Starkiller character. His epic journey from being uh, an apprentice and, and, and developing these, these quasi-magical powers through this secretive order of wizards that kind of control the galaxy. Uh, and also the the kind of the core conflict of Dune is the idea of mining for spice. So this planet uh, that the plot takes place on is an arid desert planet. It's extremely dangerous. It's essentially a narrative proxy for the Middle East. The whole uh, narrative of Dune is about the Cold War, basically. The main family that uh, you follow, sort of the protagonist family, is essentially the United States. There is a, uh, an opposing antagonistic family that is a standard in for the Soviet Union, and then the planet itself is uh, rich in this resource that's necessary for hyperspace travel called spice. Spice is, of course, just oil that you come out of the, get out of the desert, and it is essential for travel on our planet as well. So it is not a very well-disguised allegory. Uh, I don't know if it's meant to be or not, but if you watch it, uh, well, and on top of that, the uh, I've never read the books, like I said, but there's a lot of the, the language and the, the cultural trappings, I would say, of the native peoples of the planet has a, a generally Middle Eastern feel to it. The words certainly have an Arabic um, feel to them. The sandworm, for example, I think is called Shai Hulud. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but just written down, it looks like Arabic. It sounds like Arabic. So again, not not a, a disguised allegory. They're not trying to do anything subtle here. It's it's very on the nose. There was a movie made in the 80s. Uh, Mr. Uh, well, I should say Sir Patrick Stewart was in it. Sting was in it. If you go look up the cast list, there's actually quite a few. It was a really good cast. A lot of people that you'd recognize 
um, that were uh, popular in the 80s, and some of them still are. I remember watching it with my dad uh, back in the day. I don't remember it very well, and I think I watched it one more time when I was in college, undergraduate school. So we're talking like late 90s. I have not seen it since. I remember thinking it was weird. <laughs> I remember not really understanding it all that well. I re remember thinking that, although it was interesting, the special effects were not great. And that's about all I remember. I do remember the sandworm scene. That's all I remember about. The sandworm is the most famous thing. I, I believe, okay, so if you don't know anything about the story, I believe the sandworms, sandworms are these giant creatures that live under the sand. And, and if, if you've ever seen Tremors with Kevin Bacon, those are the sandworms, all right? They're these just giant worms that, that go under the sand. They're extremely dangerous. They hunt by by feel, like they can, they can feel vibrations through the world. Um, and they're attracted to rhythmic vibration. So if you're just walking across the sand, they will find you immediately and kill you. So very similar to Tremors. And I think it's uh, the, the spice that's on the planet that gets mined is I think uh, cast off by the sandworms or something that they produce is like a byproduct or they secrete it or something, I forget what it is, but they also make the spice. The um, main conflict of the story is that the, the main family, the house of Atreides, Atreides I think it is, they are appointed to be the caretakers of this planet and to conduct the mining operations to get this spice, the most valuable resource in the galaxy, the most important to commerce. They are appointed by the emperor to do this. They're kind of set up to fail. Uh, and then this starts a war between them and the antagonistic house, which is called Hurricane or Harkonnen, something like that. Uh, they're set up to fail and it, it starts sort of the whole plot in motion where um, you know, the, the royal family is all killed off except for the one uh, prince who is the main uh, protagonist. And then he has the, the traditional epic hero's journey. And what I just described to you is basically all that happens in the movie. It's about two and a half hours long. It introduces you to these families. It introduces you to the setting. They kind of don't waste a whole lot of time getting right down to uh, moving the plot forward. You know, the, the main family takes over this settlement. They're almost immediately attacked by uh, the other family. And then you sort of follow the main hero's journey, um, you know, out of this, how he escapes, uh, and then how he kind of learns to discover and use his powers a little bit, and eventually uh, meets up with the native peoples of the desert planet and sort of joins their tribe. So that's the overall plot. Um, I'm not giving away much. If you've read the books, you know this. And if you have ever seen a movie before, particularly an epic fantasy or sci-fi adventure, uh, none of these plot points will surprise you at all because this is how every one of these movies goes. So if you haven't seen it, I'll leave it there uh, and leave the rest as an exercise to the to the viewer to kind of you know, watch and enjoy it. Um, what I wanted to comment on more was sort of generally what I thought they did right and uh, what I thought they could have done better. Uh, starting with the good stuff. Um, I was really worried from the previews and from just the basic way that uh, Hollywood films are put together anymore that this story would be just a, a, a non-stop uh, sci-fi action smorgasbord. And while there is certainly something to be said for, you know, check your brain at the door and just enjoy your dumb, you know, big dumb action movie, you know, those are fun. I like those. Uh, Dune is not that type of story. It's a very intricate, detailed story. Even having not read the books, I know enough about it, and you, you pick up enough from how this film is put together to get a sense of the scope and breadth of the universe uh, that uh, that Frank Herbert built. And um, you know, when you have something like that, you, you need to give these scenes some time to breathe. You need to give uh, characters some time to develop. Action scenes where either you don't know what the stakes are or don't care based on characters that you, you know, who, 
who you're not invested in are, are not that exciting. I mean, they're visually fun, they're interesting. The the spectacle, you know, is is on, on some level is fun to watch. But if you don't really care about what's happening or who's involved, then it really kind of is it's, it's all just empty calories. And this is doubly so if the action scenes are just sort of shoehorned in to provide some excitement and otherwise don't really advance the plot or or really serve the purposes of the narrative in any way. This is something that the original Star Wars films did a really great job of. One, getting you to like and care about the characters, uh, and then two, providing action scenes that advance the plot forward in some fashion. Perhaps the movie that did this the best was the most recent Mad Max film, uh, Fury Road, uh, just did an absolutely fantastic job of really getting you to to understand the, the rules of the world, uh, to, to importantly hate the bad guy, uh, care about the good guys, and um, and then the, the action scenes that resulted all, all served the plot. You know, the things that happened in those scenes came into play later. They mattered in terms of how they changed the relative situations of the characters, what their motivations were, what their goals were. It all just fit together so well. So that's important to have. And uh, going back to Dune, from the previews, I just worried it was gonna be just nonstop, just space battles for the sake of having space battles, long, overly long action sequences that didn't do anything for the plot, didn't really teach me anything about the characters. You know, and that's, again, fun to watch on some level, but empty calories. So I'm, I'm happy to say that's not really what they did with the film. There, there is a little bit of that, but it was much more restrained than I anticipated. The film really opens slowly. They really take their time developing things. Things, and one of the early quote-unquote action sequences is not really an action sequence so much as what I would call a more traditional suspense sequence. It kind of reminded me a little bit of a scene from Flash Gordon, actually, although I'm sure that Flash Gordon got its inspiration from the uh, similar scene in the, the, you know, the Dune novels. But there's a scene where the main character has to put his hand inside of some kind of box and experiences some kind of uh, pain or distress. It's not really made clear exactly what the nature of it is, but that's good. That, that makes the scene more suspense, suspenseful when you don't know what exactly is going on. You just have the general outlines of it. So um, he has to endure this this pain, whatever it is, and uh, it's sort of a test that he's being put through. And the fact that they don't tell you exactly what the test is or what he's undergoing, you just can tell that he's in obvious pain and he's struggling, is, you know, what your what your mind can come up with is way more horrifying than, than what anybody can actually put on film. Uh, that scene was, was suspenseful, well done, good character building, good universe building, and it was a nice substitute for the usual, we are, you know, 10 minutes into the film and people have been talking for too long and now we have to have an action sequence. Basically bought the story an extra about half an hour to kind of develop the characters and lay the groundwork for the setting and the plot because there is a lot of work to be done in a film like this to get the, the audience oriented in it. You know, I, like I said, haven't read the books, not, not a, like a big Dune fan or anything, so I don't know much about it, but I don't, you know, overall I'm pretty good about filling in those details in my head and kind of, you know, getting my arms around and understanding what's going on in the story. But I, you know, speaking for myself, I needed that extra time to kind of really understand who the various characters were, their relationships, their motivations, and kind of what was going on. And, and even then, there were points where I was a little lost in the narrative. I thought they did a nice job of doling out the information you need to understand the plot, doing that in, a, in scenes that were well-constructed, well-crafted, 
interesting to watch, not too long, uh, didn't contain any unnecessary exposition. If anything, I could have probably have used more exposition. And there's also, I should say, a big cast. I mean, this show has an, an enormous cast. I shouldn't say show, it's a film. Has an enormous cast, uh, a, a good cast, lots of good actors in this. And uh, some, some of whom I think went a little bit to waste and, and could have done more with. Josh Brolin is in it, uh, but he doesn't do a whole lot. Dellen Skarsgård is in it and is probably my favorite character in this. He plays the main villain uh, and is just fantastic. He's a great actor and he really plays this one up well and you just, you hate this guy. Uh, my kids really loved the, the, the actor that plays the lead character, Timothy something, I'm not sure what his name is, but my daughter now has a huge crush on him. Um, did a fine job. Um, I, I believed him as this character, at least. Uh, the other thing I was worried that they would do incorrectly is lean too heavily on the sandworm. Uh, the sandworm is, is very sort of enigmatic, almost I'd say like a defining type of uh, character or element. When you think Star Wars, you think of Jedi and lightsabers. Those are the things that really sort of brand and define that universe. With Star Trek, of course, it's the Enterprise, it's Starfleet, maybe to a lesser extent, you know, Vulcan, Spock, Live Long and Prosper. But it's one of those narrative elements that just is, is quintessential and defining. So when you think sandworm, you think Dune. And when you've got something like that, that, you know, is, is what people are there to see, right? The people who don't know much about Dune. If you've never heard of Dune, you've probably heard of the Sandworm, or at least you might have heard that, know that there is a sci-fi series that has a Sandworm that's huge and cool and intimidating. So it's there's a temptation, I think, to over-rely on that plot element to really get people to feel like they got enough, right? That they came to the table, they got to load up their plate, and when they go away, yeah, I got to see the Sandworm a lot. But it, it betrays one of the first rules of filmmaking, which is don't show the shark. This is something that um, I think was a Spielberg that did Jaws, that he said afterwards, you know, they had a lot of limitations on the, the robotic uh, shark they used to film Jaws. It didn't look very realistic, and so they couldn't show it very much. But what your mind imagines is more interesting and more compelling than what you're actually shown. Uh, by not showing the shark, you make it more terrifying. Don't show the shark too soon because once you've seen the monster, the mystery is gone, right? The, the romance of the unknown is gone. And what you, you know, once you know what it is, it's less scary. And, and you see good movies really take advantage of this well. They did this really well with Stranger Things. We got many episodes in before we ever got a good look at the monster. And, and even then, you didn't really, really get to see what the monster looked like until the very last episode. There was another film that they did uh, that was also kind of similar to Stranger Things. It was also set in the 80s. Oh gosh, what was it called? Oh, Super 8, that's what it was, Super 8. Same kind of thing, there's an alien monster and they, they wait until about two thirds through the film before you actually get a good look at what it is. The sandworm is the same kind of deal. Um, they give you an idea of how it works, you know, some ecological aspects of it. There's a, a great uh, action piece where they're trying to rescue some guys, uh, some miners from an excavator to prevent uh, the sandworm from eating them and eating it. And so you do get an idea of kind of how the sandworm uh, attacks uh, what it looks like when it attacks, some of the things that happen, and it's it's in service of the plot. We get to some character development scenes with that. We get to understand sort of the, the moral and ethical character traits of the Atreides family. We learn a little bit more about the main character. We learn a little bit more about the environment, um, how often these attacks happen, how the, and, and the, the technology is explained. They bring these little uh, uh, helicopters out to, to remove the extractor, and one of them breaks, so they can't remove it, so it's gonna lose it. It's, it's, all, it's all well done that way. Way. The scene serves all these different purposes, but they don't show you much of the sandworm. You get to see just a little bit of it, but not, not enough to really um, get an idea of the size and scope of it. So uh, that, that's all done well, and you really don't see 
the the whole you never see the whole sandworm during the film, but you do get to see one good get one good look at it in sort of a suspenseful but non-actiony scene uh, towards the end. That that again serves good narrative purposes and is, is well constructed. So uh, I thought they were admirably uh, reserved and restrained with how they used the the sandworm uh, pl uh, plot element. Uh, in, in the visual narrative, they could have been a lot more obnoxious and just constantly scene after scene of sandworm, 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 but that is not what they did. So I think that deserves a lot of um, recognition and appreciation because it, it makes for a better film. And I think it is much harder in a big, expensive, lengthy movie like this to convince producers not to overplay the most recognizable and, and potentially most, you know, marketable and interesting aspect of the universe that you're in. It would be like somebody going to Disney for Star Wars and saying, we need fewer lightsaber battles. You know, that's that's an awfully hard argument to make. Okay, so that said, what what didn't work or what did not work? And this is maybe this is something that might be impossible to do with a film like this. But although as much as I've I've um, applauded uh, over the course of this uh, this podcast episode, the, the the restraint, the emphasis on plot and character development, there's just too much to dole out here. There's too much information to hand out, and I didn't really connect emotionally with any of the characters. Um, to to the two characters I connected with the most, there was um, uh, a pilot character played by I think Jason Momoa, uh, the guy that played Aquaman. He he was pretty well done. I at least got a sense of his relationship with the main character. And with the main character's mother, um, uh, I liked her and thought that she had uh, kind of a nice plot uh, plot arc, although she kind of disappeared from the narrative for a while. The the main character, I didn't I didn't really I mean there's nothing wrong with him. Uh, the actor did a fine job with the material. They did a nice job of kind of setting up his destiny, but I I just really didn't didn't connect with him. Didn't didn't really wasn't really rooting for him. Uh, the same way I was for like uh, a Luke Skywalker back when I was a kid. And that might just be a function of age. You know, at this point, watching a movie like this, you know, I'm not going to connect with, you know, some kid in his early 20s the way that I would when I was a, a teenager or even a, a, you know, a little kid. It makes sense that I might, you know, find a little more emotional resonance with sort of the older mentor type. So some of that might just be my age. Uh, but I think part of it is that there was too much, too much background laying to do, too much world building to do to introduce audiences to this story and to to these characters and I think while they tried to they, they, tried, they tried hard they really tried to get you to understand the characters and what their motivations were um, but I, I just felt like it, it still fell a little flat there I, I guess at the end of the day you know thinking back to Star Wars which has a lot of analogies to Dune in terms of, of the challenges of making a film like that I understood Luke Skywalker's motivations and what he wanted and what his frustrations were you know I understood him looking wide-eyed off into the sunset you just got a great sense of his impatience to to move on with his life and go do something bigger and better and and not live on a farm and that's I think that's just naturally easier for all of us to connect with than some you know pampered prince of some high royal house in some strange universe who is swept up into political machinations that are kind of beyond his control or understanding. Uh, in that sense, the prince is almost more like Anakin Skywalker in Episode One, where he's kind of swept up into larger events taking place around him, but he's not really in control of any of it. He barely even understands what's going on, uh, and we're not even really sure what his motivations are. And the same with uh, the the prince. I think his name's Paul in uh, Dune. Not really sure like what what are his goals? What are his motivations? You know, does he seek his father's approval? Does he want to get out of this whole thing and not be part of this royal family? Is there some big tradition or, or family uh, legacy he wants to maintain? He just seems like a pawn in a greater political uh, you know, game of chess. And that's, you know, 
I mean, all of us have that in our lives to some extent. We're not all in control of everything, but that's not, I don't go to the movies to watch somebody else get battered around by fate. So I, I didn't really ever get a sense of what it is he wants. It's hard to see the stakes and, and where uh, the plot conflict is, where he is being challenged to not get what he wants. And that's where the dramatic tension of the movie comes from, is we understand what the character wants. The character has to want something, and we have to want them to get it as the audience. That part just didn't come through to me in the film. And so it was more just a story of of, of him surviving the situation he wound up in. And, and that was interesting enough in its own regard, but I think if they had done more to kind of set up and what his motivations are, uh, it, it would have added a little more uh, personal interest, dramatic tension, and emotional resonance with the audience when there are conflict scenes, when there were action scenes. But it didn't land for me, and um, I just don't know if that's a function of my age or just the, the, the screenplay just didn't have time to really develop that. So, so where does that leave us? You know, I think if you, uh, if you like me, are a generally a fan of sci-fi, of fantasy, or just of big epic films, um, I found this one overall pretty satisfying. There were areas where I thought it could have been better, but it, it wasn't overly long. It was certainly plenty long enough without being overly long. And I, as I understand it, it's the first of maybe a trilogy that's going to be made. So to that extent, I think it does a pretty commendable job of establishing the universe, the characters, the conflicts, the setting. Um, I think they did about as good as you could do in the big theater release format with this type of material. I really don't think the future of uh, sci-fi and fantasy is is theater. Not unless you've got like one discrete, very concrete story you can tell in a universe that doesn't require a lot of explaining. Uh, you know, a movie like The Martian works really well because it's based in our world. You don't have to explain to me how the politics work. I already understand what NASA is. I already understand what Mars is. I already understand uh, what an astronaut is. So if you're going to release a sci-fi or fantasy, really sci-fi especially, if you're going to release one of these big epic films in the theater, you've really got to take advantage of what the audience already knows to kind of provide gap fillers for elements of the universe that you just don't have time to lay out in the movie format. And that might be why there's so much reliance on existing properties and not creating anything new uh, in the theater format. It's just, it's too hard to do in, in a way that is really satisfying. Uh, but the downside of using existing properties is you know, although you get the benefit of the audience foreknowledge of the universe, that's also a detriment, right? Because then you wind up with what we had with the Star Wars sequels where people don't, you know, the Star Wars sequels were not really movie. They were movies about making a, a Star Wars movie. It was just taking a bunch of iconography and, and elements from prior films, putting them into a blender, and then turning them back out in a new format. And, and you know, it, it looked nice, it was fun to watch, but there was no story told. Again, empty calories. So, I don't know, it's it's kind of tough to say how these things should be done. I feel, I think that the, the streaming format is better for this stuff. It gives you more time, it gives you more room to develop the story, to develop the plot points. Uh, Stranger Things is a good example of that. They had eight episodes, and that was, you know, that takes place in our world, but they still had to explain the upside down, the monster uh, and and these characters and they were able to do that uh, you know over the course of eight episodes and and really give the scenes room to breathe so on that note I'm also watching the foundation series which is streaming I understand that um, I've I have read the books for that one it's been a minute I read them about 15 years ago all in one week so I've only read them once I kind of remember the general outlines of the plot but um, I don't remember the details very well so I have seen the first episode of foundation I will watch the rest and then do a um, separate review um, of that series after I finish that. So those are my thoughts on Dune, and I uh, appreciate you staying and listening, assuming you did. Uh, talk to you next time.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 